All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Ultra Hope Girls, a Danganronpa podcast. Today, we are going to be delving into the game that is probably our most asked if we're going to cover game, which is Ultra Despair Girls, because it's, you know, part of our name. Um, and we're beginning that with chapter one in the prologue today. And we're really excited to delve in because this game has a lot to unpack. Just a heads up that this episode will spoil chapter one of Ultra Despair Girls. That's pretty much it. So let's just dive right into it. I'm Maddie. I'm Marin. And I'm Caroline. And we're the Ultra Hope Girls. chapter where we meet our two protagonists for this game, Toko and Kamaru, and they venture through Toa City to take down Masaru in a final boss battle. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> All right. So we have our first female protag. Yay! Yeah. Thank we God. Do. Though I gotta say, uh, she is... <laughs> the worst i don't like her for the first couple of chapters of the game i i like where she ends up which i won't say anything but yeah don't like okay her at the beginning definitely okay. not a fan yeah I, she's definitely my least favorite niagi um by a, a long <laughs> long while <laughs> there are only two of them my <laughs> least favorite niagi <laughs> yeah i had a really tough time with her she's just she is the type of person who's like, oh, like, I can't do anything. I'm so normal. I, oh my goodness, everyone help. And I get it. You know, we're not in the scenario with her. It's scary. She probably does need help. But like, uh, it just bothers me when people like can't do anything on their own. And I was like, girl. <laughs> I have such little patience for people like that. Like, it's like, like, just stop, like, stop and, like, figure it out and, like, survive. Like, don't whine, you idiot. Like, stop it. It drives me crazy. Anyway. I will say, in defense of Kamaru, I, I'm always the odd one out. I feel like I'm always the odd <laughs> yeah. one out. Um, <laughs> but I actually kind of like her. Um, I really do. I think that, like, I mean, a lot of people hate on her, and I hear what you guys are saying, and I've heard a lot of other people talking about how they don't like how much she complains, or they don't like how much she cries, or they don't like all that stuff, but I I just am coming from the, the place of, like, she, I think she's 16 in this game, and so she's literally, like, this 16-year-old girl, she's been, like, imprisoned randomly in an apartment for a year and a half, and then is coming out into the streets to see people getting, like, slaughtered by robots like I would probably be <laughs> crying too like I'd probably be complaining that's pretty traumatic and so like I just don't like to hold that against her like I really just think honestly that that's kind of more realistic than someone being like I'm gonna face my demons and blah, 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 like at 16 years old just like you know I, I don't know true <laughs> I I mean one of the questions I had about her actually to ask you guys is um do you consider her to be an optimist a realist or a pessimist because my gut feeling was she's a pessimist she to me walks around and says oh like we can't do anything you know like in the first chapter chapter one she gives up for like five seconds but she gives up and I'm just I'm not sure I'm curious what your opinions are because she's she's almost like 
a a, a brand all of her own where she's simply gullible because Toka will offer some piece of like hope and she's like oh my gosh yes let's go get the key like we can do it we can do anything and then it's like but what if the key doesn't work it won't work and Toka's like but it could and she's like yes yes it will <laughs> and so I I'm curious she does kind of go between extremes. Right. I agree. I, I don't know. And I also, I do want to like really quick respond to what Maddie said. Like, I completely understand that. 100%. <laughs> and that was my defense of her. Like, she is, I like her more than Makoto for that reason that I feel like her, like the situation where that she's in makes her act in a way that is completely natural and normal. <laughs> and I like her character development. So She's your favorite Niagi. Right. <laughs> I prefer her to Makoto personally, but anyway. Um, but I think that she is someone who hasn't formulated what her outlook on the world is yet. And so she is having to try out different things and and see how it works. So like sometimes it's like, yeah, we can do anything. Ah. And then sometimes it's like, oh, there is no hope. It is all like, it's so dramatic, but yeah, she switches so violently that I don't think she has quite found that aspect or her identity yet as a young person. And I do want to talk a little bit about how I think that this game more so than the others is a coming of age story than the vision novel uh, games too. We'll talk about that. I'm sure, but yeah, that's a big, sure. big part of her character development. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think she is, technically in ninth grade if i'm not mistaken because so she's 15 or 14 yeah no i think she i think she's 16 i think i read something on the wiki saying that she was 16 at the beginning of the game um but she's at least yeah, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure she's i don't know her, when they start high school in exactly Japan. i was gonna say she's like her first right. year of high school because she got the uniform shipped to her so that's the assumption is like you know it, it's her first year of being in high school whenever that is so like i mean we all remember you know being in high school in ninth grade like no one knows who they are really and if you think you do right. most people change you know <laughs> so like it is understandable yeah you're right i i am definitely being hard on her it's just you know i, I take i take my characters for what they are what they give me and that's it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um i wanted to talk a little bit about um okay the one thing that I, I i was saying that like oh i think she reacts more realistically because of how upset the all the traumatic things that she sees make her um but the one thing that i thought was really unrealistic is if we could talk a little bit about the very beginning of the game when she is trapped in the apartment and we learn that she has been there for a year and a half and she supposedly has been locked in this apartment, cannot leave or go anywhere, and does, has not had any human interaction for a year and a half. And she, team, she seems way too sane for that. Um, <laughs> really? She, I mean, like, people, people who are in, like, social isolation and don't get to interact with any other human beings at all for, like, a month, like, lose their minds. And it's really bad. And so I was like wow I mean suspension of disbelief okay but yeah <laughs> yeah definitely take someone with a strong will to be able to survive and adapt to that kind of circumstances but I just think it's very interesting too because like we'll talk about heroism I'm sure we'll talk about heroes and in this chapter discussion but I think that in the beginning Kamaru like adapts really well to this like 
very placid lifestyle where it's just the same thing every day and there's not like it's just you eat your food and you drink your water and read your magazine and like it's the same thing every day whereas as soon as she is thrown into something that is so dramatic wait actually that would make sense why she's like going nuts and going wild at the beginning of this chapter because she is so used to that like routine of a lifestyle and then when that suddenly gets interrupted with things that are just out of this world I mean exactly yeah that's a good point Maddie the next thing I have happening right off the bat and and very early on in this game is Byakuya (gasps) Togami swooping in like a knight in shining armor all he's missing is a white horse that he can be riding on and (laughs) I screamed in joy when I saw him it's just like oh my god he like just comes in to you know rescue you and save the day it's just When I watched the playthrough of this game, I like audibly gasped. I was probably like sitting on the couch in the family room, like watching like it on YouTube. And I was like, and my parents were like, what? And I was like, Biaki is here. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't expect him that soon because I knew he was in it, but I I didn't expect him to show up like in the first like two minutes of the entire thing. I had no idea he was in it. Me neither. No idea. Yeah. And I screamed. (laughs) I figured since Toko was that he would be. That was that was kind of my thought process mm. there, but because mm-hmm. they're dating. Yes. Mm. No. That's oh, can't. Oh. Then. I have Oops. I have evidence actually written down. Is this, <laughs> is this the time here? Yes. Oh my goodness. Is it Toko's okay. fantasies. <laughs> Toko's fantasies. No, well, no, but we'll talk about that too. <laughs> I, I was thinking when I was watching this game because like we get such a clear like characterization of Toko that we have really never seen before. Like we've never gotten this in depth with her I think even in the killing game because she had to share screen time with 16 other people and she's not the main character in that game you know so we didn't see everything so I was noticing in her early interactions with Kamaru that she is very like she her defense mechanism is to assume that people are lying to her and they actually think the opposite of what they're telling her so she'll be like no you don't think that you think that I'm like a worthless piece of crap and like blah 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 but I think that the reason her and Biagria work is because he's at least honest with her. He doesn't have to, she doesn't have to doubt like what he thinks like of her because he just tells her and that taking that doubt, self doubt away, like for her, is probably very freeing because he's just really honest with her. And like, I, I, it made me even more be like, this makes sense to me. Like why this works because she never doubts like how he feels. Cause he just tells her. Period. True. I know there's disagreements there. <laughs> I mean, okay, no, I hear what you're saying though. You heard I what think I'm saying, that is yeah. actually definitely part of the appeal of her for of Biakia for her. I, yeah. I agree with that. I just don't I don't think that Biakia returns the uh, reciprocates the the feelings. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe those fantasies are I <laughs> Yeah, let's just let's just dive in. Let's dive in. <laughs> let's just unpack. We're like these. ten minutes into the beginning of the episode, and we're already talking. It's about time. <laughs> we, we can't ignore it. it we is haven't just... even gotten to her when she's introduced in the plot. <laughs> okay, but that's okay. 
I don't even know what to say about them, to be honest. I, I think they kind of stand on their own. It's just like I, I have always always wanted or when I played through game one I always wanted to know what was going on in her mind because from the outside we just see like anger towards other people who talk to him and like you know very protective mindset but like this it just it it answered so many questions that I didn't even know I had and uh, yep (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and I, I just like now like re-watching this like knowing and having met the two actors involved in it it's hard not to hear like them like it's just really funny because I'm just like yep that's there's Amanda and there is Jason (laughs) right there it's just really funny also can we talk about how there's four voice actors in this entire game because every side character is voiced by like the same like seven people like that was all the (laughs) And I just like when in that scene when Byakuya comes to save you and he has the gun and he's shooting the Monokumas. I just like Caroline and I prepped this episode together because we are physically together right now and we were watching this and we were both just like in the moment when like the Monokumas are like ripping his like co-workers to shreds in the hallway like <laughs> like just <laughs> slaughtering them and Byakuya is just standing watching. there with the gun like watching this happen <laughs> like talking to Kamaru and we were just like screaming like, shoot them <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know also his um you can tell and this is goes for Toko too and I'm sure we'll talk about Toko's entrance like pretty soon but you can tell right off the bat that he is different than he was in the killing game. Like you can tell like his Sprite, I, we're, we're devoting like 15 minutes of this to me. He's in like two, three minutes of the game. No, but he, you can tell that his smile, like he's smiling a little in yes. the Sprite and he, he's like, he's changed. Like he's changed. And you can tell right off the bat, like that he's, a, he's the killing game has affected him for the better. I think, I think he's. Then we have, Kamaru, she takes a gun from Yakia and she leaves the building for the first time in a year and a half and um, goes running off, sees Monokuma's killing people in the streets, runs into the diner, the pig boy diner, fun fact, um, is the first thing she sees when she walks outside. Um, and that, we have that, the beginning of Kamaru's journey. Did you see on the Pig Boy restaurant, the Pig Boy is dressed as Teru Teru. Like, it literally yes. has his haircut. Yeah, okay. That was yeah. really funny. I was also <laughs> going to say that I think that this game, you can really tell right off the bat that the the vibe is totally different. Like, in the first two games, they would talk about the most awful, most tragic event in human history, and they would, like, tell you about it. But, like, this game, you're seeing it. And I think that I didn't realize, like, how, like messed up like what was going on was I mean like it's so violent and bloody and the amount of like dead bodies laying around throughout the game like oh my gosh like it just it it was like a sting of reality like in the other two games were trapped in the killing school life which is its own bubble but it's separate from what's going on in the outside world which is horrible and we're seeing it for the first time which is really interesting yeah and I mean like I think in the first and second game, the times that really kind of disturbed me the most were the executions. But even that, it was like, it made me sad. It made me uncomfortable. But this is the first game where I've had to like look away. Like when the kids in the diner are playing with the dead man's body on TV, I grimaced and like that, like 
this game, you're right, it's a completely new level of just disturbing. They did not hold back. No. I have a note similar to that, and it's it, this is exactly when I thought of that, Marion, is when they start broadcasting that video in the diner. Um, and I noticed that I was like, I, I had the exact same notice. Like, this game did not hold back. They went full dark. They went full violent. But it was interesting to me that the blood is still pink. Right. And it's funny because, like, I think maybe, maybe that's just like a Danganronpa trademark. But it was interesting because it seems like in some ways that is kind of a way to water it down a little bit. Like, oh, the blood's pink. It's just funky. And like, this is a video game, like not really violent, but like in this game, they are really going for it and really embracing the violence, um, but but still doing the pink blood thing. Yeah. And that's like part of the reason we have, like, well, for the season, we'll have like an explicit rating is because just the things that are brought up are just so, like, there's no way we can have a free open discussion about it without acknowledging like everything that happens. Like, yeah. And, and it's interesting because there was a lot of talk when Danganronpa was coming over from Japan, if they would have to take certain scenes out of like the, the visual novels, if they would be appropriate for Western audiences and they decided not to. And part of me is kind of like, this is even worse. Like they didn't question like bringing this over. Okay. Cause like Danganronpa is already a thing. Like there are plenty of violent video games in, you know, the United States and in everywhere. I mean, like, you know, first person shooters and like all those things are, you know, people, so many people play those. Um, but but yeah, this it's just like it's such a contrast from the Dong and Rampa that we know that it's very jarring. Yeah. I think, Maddie, what you were saying about the pink blood, I actually don't view the pink blood, even in this game, as a takeaway from the violence. I think in the other games, I probably would have seen it that way. But I think what makes this game so disturbing is the juxtaposition of what is supposed to be good and what that is doing in this game there are little kids murdering you know there is a town destroyed they're like it's all the wrong side of what is normal what is considered good and so I think the blood being pink it's just another example of that and so I saw it kind of adding to that that like juxtaposition and like layering yeah gotcha Um, yeah yeah Yeah. oh my god when Nagito <gasps> appears, when Kamara was like waking up from getting like, captured by Monokuma's, oh my god! I, that was another moment when I actually screamed out loud. Um, so I, one of my one of my discussion questions, or what are our thoughts on servant Nagito? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing: I think servant Nagito is a very interesting character because I assumed, and I'm pretty sure we know that this is despair Nagito, and rooting for the underdog because he's he literally says like oh this common girl like good luck common girl protagonist like you're gonna kick their butt or I don't know whatever he says (laughs) um and he like it's such a hopeful thing to root for the underdog and so I think that part of why he helps her and I don't know if we'll find out more later uh is like because he wants there to be like either her own hope to persevere or the warriors of hope hope to persevere either one you know for my thoughts on nagito um i do think he's despair nagito just based on the timeline and that to me like what would cause nagito despair well it would be rooting for a thing that is hopeless right oh 
Yeah. Mm. And so that to me is exactly why he helps out Kamaru because at this point he's evil. And I mean, the warriors of hope seem pretty evil to me. (laughs) So like, (laughs) I think like that's kind of why he's with them, but I don't think he's rooting for them. Yeah. And so it's kind of, it's like this weird balance of whose side is he on? It's almost no one's like not even his own side at this point. Um, Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that he, I absolutely don't think that he's on the side of the warriors of hope. Cause they've like, you know, like put a chain around his neck and they're like, you're just a servant. Like, and I think, is it Masaru who says like, I'm going to sew your mouth shut yeah, if you like- keep talking without permission. Like clearly they're not friends, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard to tell at this point what Nagito really wants, but mm-hmm. it, he does seem to be trying to help Kamaro. Mm-hmm. So, and we, he also has the, um, we can see the, the mitten, over his left hand, where he has supposedly Junko's arm right. attached. Yeah. This was just a moment where I couldn't really find the will in my soul to like Kamaru because she's in the room. Nagito's like, don't tell anyone about the gun. All right. And she's like, cool. Yeah. Like, I won't do that. Five minutes go by. Maybe that. She walks in. They're like, wow, you got through the maze. And she's like, all thanks to my hacking gun. And he's like, <laughs> like he's like, Kamaru. <laughs> yeah. I know he literally steps in and is like, remember what I told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, remember that that's like whenever every time, like literally take a shot every time Toko says, like, you idiot, do you even have a brain in that head of yours? Like, <laughs> that's me watching this girl. I'm like, you are so so dumb sometimes so nagito in response to how kamaro is reacting to being in this like imprisoned cell he says you're more worried about what's going to happen to you than what's going to happen to the rest of the world and this is the moment that i sort of realized that this was a coming of age story for kamaro is because the the children see her as an adult but she's really not like physically, maybe she is bigger than other kids and she maybe has still room to grow because I was still growing when I was 15. God knows. But um, but mentally, I feel like the capacity of caring for others, at least in a social context, is something that comes with growing up. Like putting others before yourself is so vital to growing up. So right now we're clocking in the prologue, Kamaro cares more about her own survival in this situation than the state of the world right now. And I just thought that that was really interesting and looking at how with each, and again, we're going to get to this, but with each kid that we meet and how encountering more of them changes Toko and Kamaru's character for like, like growing up in in a way. Uh, I actually have a question, um, like a generalized question that I think could work really well here, which is um, uh, I was curious at what point you think childhood ends or is there some of it that never ends? You know, like what what does childhood mean? I honestly, I don't have a good answer to that question. There has been a lot of, like I took a developmental psychology class. And so we went over a lot of different like theories that people had about like the stages of development and how like, you know, some people had theories that were around like these three main stages of like childhood, adolescence and adulthood. Some people had sta- had like, 13 14 stages over the course of a decade of like this stage is this and then when you're 12 it's this and then when you're 13 14 it's that like there are so many different theories but um and there's not necessarily like one theory that's like oh this one has the most evidence because a lot of them are just so abstract I mean in my opinion I think that childhood is it's 
it's interesting. One of the things that we have studied in developmental psych is the evolution of adolescence over like centuries in our culture, especially, and how adolescence has lengthened. Um, and it is like, you know, if you were to go back to like the 1800s, at least in the United States, a 14 year old kid would have like a job would be like, could be working in like a shoe factory or something <laughs> like, and would be like, everyone would address them as oh, a young man or young woman. Like they could get married at that. You know what I mean? And, um, and nowadays it's like, you could be 25 years old and still like living with your parents and still like on their health insurance and still not have a job. And it's just so, you know what I mean? Like it's very much things have changed. Um, and adolescence, the period of like in between being not quite a child, but not quite an adult is longer than ever now it's like over a decade uh, over a decade for some people but i think childhood ends when you are at a point where you feel i don't know like I, I think in some ways it has to do with the responsibilities like are you capable of like doing things to take care of yourself like i'm still learning how to cook i'm like becoming more independent and that for me is like me a way of like growing up but also like emotional maturity are you aware are you able to like communicate and like resolve conflicts and like see things from other people's points of view and like that kind of thing I think there's a lot to it and I think there's no one point when childhood ends it's like at what point do you stop being a child emotionally at what point do you stop being a child physically at what yeah. point do you mm. stop being a child occupationally like something like that I, I think yeah. that there's different different elements to it so to speak to that I think that I and this might be like how I just view growing up and viewing the world. And this could change as I get older. But I think that there are elements of childhood that should stay with a person as they grow into adulthood. There is a book called The Little Prince <laughs> that I will talk to more lengths about in a later chapter because it's actually directly referenced, I think, in chapter two. But there is something like that book very much speaks about not forgetting what it was like to be a child, which I think some of the uh, parents of these children could take a lesson in. <laughs> but there's deeper problems going on there. That's not another topic there. But I think that with with growing up, I, I would argue that it's similar to what I said. It's care, It's understanding that you need to care about others sometimes more than yourself, like care about the like what others are going through or understanding what, you know, obviously not with like sacrificing self-care that's not what I'm saying but you right. know you know what I mean right I think it kind of goes along with like um some psych terms <laughs> the id ego and super ego uh -huh. um it's yes. like when yep. you stop primarily focusing on your id which uh, for our listeners if you don't know is like the portion of your brain or your soul or personality I guess that is all about what you want right then. Like, it's like, oh, I see a bowl of candy. I want the candy. Your superego says, no, candy is bad for you. Don't have any candy. That's not good. And your ego, the middle point says you can have one piece. And so it's like, it's kind of balancing the two sides. And so to I completely agree with both of you. I think it depends on what you define childhood as. I like Maddie's point of splitting it into multiple areas. And I think it's just like Caroline said, like where you have a little bit of control over that, like, want part of your of yourself. Marin, that last note you said about the id and the superego, I actually brought that up when talking about the paradise that they are going to build because the idea of the paradise is like doomed to fail because kids grow up. That is fact factual unless you're in Neverland. <laughs> oh Peter Pan. Um but <laughs> there is a very um 
good book, which I'm sure many of you have read in English class. It's Lord of the Flies by William Golding um, that sort of navigates this idea of like what would happen if like 12 year old boys were on an island together and basically spoiler alert, but probably not because you probably know what it's about. Like maybe or, or generally know the, the vibe, but they essentially give in to their id and like kill each other and like give in to their primal desires and stuff. But a very essential part of Lord of the Flies as a book is at the very end, the boys are rescued and taken on a ship and they're like saved. Oh, th thank God that ends happy. The adults found them. But the ship is a warship and it's entering into a war zone because the, the end of the book, I believe, takes place during World War II. So they're essentially entering a bigger version of what they were experiencing on the island. So I would argue that a lot of adults, like the, a big reason why that the, ki the kids want to start this paradise is the big ecosystem of our world has systems in place put in there by the superego and systems of like war and like ways to navigate like personal, like international relations between countries, but it's not any better than this primal id desire for power because that's at the center of these systems of like violence and like of oppression of other people, which is the end, what the end of the Lord of, of the Flies is basically saying. It's like, oh, you think what happened on this island was bad? Well, that's what's happening in our world. Like all the time with these fight, this fight for power is it is the id taking over. So I just think it's kind of an interesting conversation to have in relation to this, this game, because it's like the Warriors of Hope want a world where the adults id isn't taking over, but it's theirs. Literary girl. <laughs> I, I very much forgot that that was how Lord of the Flies ended. Mm -hmm. It's like, essential to talk yeah, about the yeah. ending when talking about that book. Essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, what were you guys' first impressions of these five kids? I got a very strong Dungeons and Dragons vibe from them. Yeah, which like at first I was like, I'm, I'm actually, I'm currently re-watching um, the show Stranger Things, which is why this is like kind of present <gasps> in my mind. It is. It is so good. High recommend. Um, but each of these kids, when they introduce themselves, they give themselves a title like hero, sage, priest, fighter, and mage. And those roles are kind of key parts of the game Dungeons and Dragons. Like leader is not a role you can play, but it's a style of character that fits some of the roles and stuff like that and like some of those roles are real within Dungeons and Dragons and if if any of our listeners are super super big D&D fans I'm so sorry if I mess any of this up I'm not an avid player but like um yeah I thought it was super cool and they they say these little things like Masaru says I'm the party leader and Jotaro says we're a party of heroes that hunt down demons it's a very much dissociated take on what they're doing it's like this is a game it's all a game i'm the mage like i do magic in this world to kill demons when in reality they're just killing real people and yeah that was kind of my first take on the group as a whole was uh that vibe i think the first thing that i noticed was like this is such like the actor in me but i noticed the voice acting of all the characters like um, I always love like because my voice type fits the little boy very well and so like I always love hearing like women voice little boys because it's like just so interesting to me how how they they choose to do it like just the specificity of the voices for each of these characters like Masaru's voice actor is very like stereotypical like boy in elementary school and then like Jotaro's voice actor Michelle Ruff I just want to give you a shout out my 
I have a note about Jotaro saying I think that um, he's the best voice acted one of the kids like I just it's so like he's like so creepy but like the voice acting is so good <laughs> hi guys it's like it's so like hollow and but nasally. I really want to not be locked up with everyone <laughs> you ever think about what putting your hand be? through the bicycle spokes <laughs> while it's spinning <laughs> That was really good. That was good, Maddie. <laughs> oh, wow, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Yuta, who we meet, Yuta Asahina, is voiced by Michelle Ruff, too, oh, which I thought was very interesting because I was like, really? When I when I found that out, I was like, oh, what? Okay. I yeah. actually, I could hear it. When I when I first heard Yuta, I was like, this sounds like Jotaro. And so I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're pretty but cool. Yeah, voice acting is basically what I noticed. Um, gotcha, they're yeah. all so unique. Mm-hmm. And um, I think my favorite is Nagisa. Like, 100% like, want to play that character like in the musical someday. Like, yeah, like, I love it. Nagisa is the only one of the kids who didn't want to make me smash my laptop to pieces <laughs> upon first meeting them. I, I'm sorry, I do not like these children. I'm so sorry. Um, no, that's a little extreme. That's a little extreme. But I did also write down um, that Masaru looks like baby Leon mm-hmm. and even his shirt is similar. I also will say I thought Nagisa was a girl for straight up three, three quarters of this game. Also, tag yourself. What little ultimate would you be? I'd probably be little ultimate science. Oh, like if we were, um, ulti- I'd be little ultimate English or li- or um, language arts. Little ultimate language. Arts. Actually, I'd be little ultimate liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> Look at her. I think I would be. Honestly, I might have been a little ultimate PE when I was in elementary school. I can school. see that for you, Mary. Yeah, one hundred percent. Marin is Masaru. Yeah. <laughs> Because right. I definitely loved like acting, but I, w- I was more of a like quiet, creative, like living in my own imagination, like imagining things in my backyard, not like performative. Like I like I wasn't like, well, I was a little bit too, but you know, like I was I wouldn't say I was the ultimate drama. Like, right. Yeah. 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 I, yeah probably P.E. or maybe science. Yeah. So after we meet the kids, they tell us that they are going to hunt us. They decide that this is going to be a game to them. And yeah, that was very interesting. It reminded me of um, a book called The Most Dangerous Game. Yes, it is such a good, good book. I actually want to nominate the title for this chapter to be The Most Dangerous Game. So the idea of like going out and trying to kill Kamaru um, as a game reminded me a lot of the book, The Most Dangerous Game, um, which is about a man who falls off his boat on the way to a hunting trip and he gets caught like on an island and he finds a hut. Yeah. And it's he meets a man and the man's like, oh, like, I'm kind of tired of killing the animals on this island. I like to kill humans. P.S. I'm going to kill you. Run. And yeah, it's like a, a very terrifying book. I mean, it's very well written. It's not like horror or anything, but it's super interesting because it delves into the idea of the mindset of being human and, and what that means. And um, yeah, I think that this game is a really nice parallel to that. 
I thought of that as well. I thought of that story. I was like, yeah, because it, it's like, they're like, all right, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. They give you like, I, I don't know. I think the guy in the story says like, you have 24 hours and then I'm sending my dogs after you or something. And like, he comes out with like a rifle and his dogs. Uh, oh God, that, yeah, that, that story is. Um, M- Marin, I have read that. I knew earlier I said, I didn't think I had, but I have actually read that when you yay! described it. I was like, yeah, I've read that. It's a short story, right? Technically. Yeah. I think yeah, it's a short story. Yeah. I don't know if it's yeah, a book, but that. yeah. So uh, the only other thing is, um, when we're talking to the kids right before they release Kamaru into the world, Monica says, you don't have the right to choose your path. You don't have the right to speak. And that is a clear distinction from the end of game two, where their entire end is we're picking our path. We're making our path. Like what you say doesn't matter. And Monica like says like, you're not in a position to choose here. And then you're like released. Um, So I thought it was a very interesting uh, counterpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then Kamaru gets yeeted out the airlock um, <laughs> and falls, falls to the earth. And uh, we, we get to meet a certain someone shortly after who comes to her rescue. Let me tell you, that entrance was probably the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Like when she just yeets out and you see the scissors slicing in before you even see who it is. I was like, <gasps> yes. Togo's here. <laughs> she is back and she is still obsessed with byakuya um as as we can see aren't we all um yeah (laughs) i I love that we get to see more of genocide jack here like and her personality i really liked that Mm -hmm. agreed agreed and I was also going to say, I like Toka's new look. I I mean, she's still wearing her same clothes. As but she, like, and we learn later on, she has not changed her clothes or showered in probably like two years. But, um, but I like how her hair is down. Like her, her hair is down. She looks a little bit more mature at the same time, though, her clothes are like ripped to shreds. Um, and you can actually like the tear in her skirt. You can see the um, scars on her thigh of like the tally marks. Um, but I kind of liked it. I, she seems like she is like it has been freed of something, you know. And I think um, that has a lot to do with her learning how to control her own like shifts in personality and like using the like taser gun thing to she says she she describes it as having tamed her her being genocide jack um and i just had mad respect for her for that we definitely see how the killing game has has changed her person like not changed her personality but like helps her grow as a character in a lot of ways because like she talks a lot about like trying to overcome like her fear of blood like she talks about like yeah i'm like trying to like overcome my fear like which is like crazy. And you know, the way later she like lifts up Kamaru when she's just at her worst, like and in her own Toko way, like, and um and yeah, like try aiming to control like genocide Jack, like and promising Biakia that she will not kill another human being, which we will see if that will or will not happen. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. And I wanted to talk about. I, I forgot to bring this up when we were talking about Toko's fantasies, but like Kamaru makes a comment like, oh, like, like your delusions, like those are your delusions. And she goes, no, it's like not my delusions. It's my imagination. And I like to call it imagination. And that line like made me realize that like, yes, Toko is our classic pessimist. Like 
I love her to death. She's so funny. But this shows how she has like formed a world in her mind where she can like deal with the world around her. Like her her viewing her delusions as imagination is a much more positive way to like look at her thoughts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like rather than like delusions, because like you know, like when I was like little, like in my backyard, acting things out and making up voices to myself, like <laughs> people could like, and I still do that sometimes maybe cut that, but like, like, and people might be like, wow, like, what are those delusions that she's imagining? But it's like, no, it's just my imagination. I'm just like imagining like circumstances. And I think as, as artists, <laughs> oh my God, I feel like I'm in school <laughs> as artists. Like it's important to, to, to distinguish that, like, too as a writer and all that stuff. all right guys we're gonna take a quick break but before we go um let us know what you think of ultra despair girls we're so excited to jump into this game and we will be putting so much more content about the game onto our patreon so make sure you check that out make sure you subscribe the smallest tier you can subscribe to is two dollars per month and we would love to have you join us in our community we have social media everywhere twitter facebook tumblr we have a twitch we are streaming constantly please check it out and uh yeah we'll be right back after this When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Caroline here with a pretty exciting announcement. So I, separate from the other Ultra Hope girls, am offering some online virtual classes in things such as writing, because, you know, I'm the ultimate literary girl, and performing, and also some clubs and classes virtually via my own school, which I founded, called The Spilling Ink School. You can check that out at thespillinginkschool.com. I'm offering tutoring and college essays. I'm offering, you know, piano classes and all that jazz. So definitely check it out. It's a good time. And I will also be offering some clubs and classes that are Danganronpa related via OutSchool. So I'll keep the links all in the description. They are for people under 18, so ask your parents before checking it out. But yeah, I'm excited to potentially have some listeners in my classes, and I wanted to let you know that that's going on. So thanks so much in advance for checking it out, and I look forward to teaching some of you. I want to read out my Toko is me. Yes, yes, yes please. Please. <laughs> So um, Marin actually texted me one of the images, which I also took a screenshot of when we were watching because I was like, because <laughs> it's when Kamaru and Togo are arguing about who's more tired. <laughs> and Togo says, I'm liberal arts to the core, no energy at all. And that was like, I was cackling. That was me as heck. Um, also the part where she says, God, just thank me directly when, when Toko is like, or sorry, not Toko, when Kamaru is like, like, oh, thank God for you, Toko. She's like, why are you thanking God? Like me. Um, also you gain nothing averting your eyes to reality. Let me tell you, like, I'm out here like, oh, theater is a hard industry and I am well aware of it. And I remind myself of that all the time. And that was like, 
that and then lastly but like probably the peak the peak is when you're in the final boss battle with Masaru and he calls the place the Kiliseum and then she just goes on to exp- like misunderstanding the joke and then explaining that it's actually a Colosseum <laughs> used in ancient Rome I was like <laughs> I said this game really out here like reading me <laughs> that was rude of it <laughs> but anyway but yeah. I love that so much so um, if anyone doubt ever doubted this game really can we talk about the training potty saving devices I just don't know why, like to save like that. It's so <laughs> weird and demeaning and like, it is. but she's like, okay with it. She's like, okay. And Toka's like, you're really going to sit on that. Or- it's just weird. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I think it's just like, again, emphasizing like that she isn't an adult yet. Yeah. Anyway. In a lot of ways. Yeah. I do think though, that brings up a neat point, which is um, how Toko and Kamaru are constantly arguing over who is older which i think is so interesting because that is such a childish thing to do to be like oh well i'm your elder like i'm two years older than you like i'm 14 you know or whatever (laughs) i don't know like and i just thought it was really interesting and how much the age dynamic shows in the characters too like you can tell toko is is significantly older um based on just her experience and like how she acts and and doesn't give up as easily like like kamaru gives up like you can tell she's she's younger um, so, yeah. All right. So we're walking around, we're finding all these goodies. And one of the things we find is a hit list item of um, Takaki Ishimaru. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. But we can assume that it's Taka's father who's on this hit list, which is super interesting because I think that we learn in Taka's free time events. Maddie, you would probably know a little bit more about this than um, me, but like that he didn't have a great relationship with his father. Am I mistaken on that? Um, actually, yeah, I, I think that it was something about like his father got into like some business venture and then ended up like becoming greedy and like, you know, did some corrupt things. And so Taka like strongly disapproved of it. And or he might have actually been talking about his grandfather as the prime minister got involved in corrupt thing so i'm not 100 oh, sure it was okay. one of those yeah it's just interesting because like kamaru is makoto's hit list person is what we're assuming here and from how kamaru describes it she and makoto have a pretty good relationship she thinks it's kind of bad but it's actually like a really good brother sister relationship and so like it's interesting i wasn't sure if the problem if taka had a problem with his father and then it's like why is the person on his hit list not as strong of a relationship like yes he'd still care ultimate moral compass but like yeah i don't know i had a similar i had a question of like based on learning a little about like taka's father i think like what what do we think his like upbringing was like i mean his father was a policeman which i think you know right and wrong the law is the law like i think that that definitely influenced him Valjean <laughs> at last <laughs> <laughs> the next major thing that happens is that we get to meet Hina's little brother Yuta Asahina and he's adorable and then he dies like four seconds later because Dong and Rampa writers do not want us to be happy mm-hmm. um yeah I thought it, it was so cute how he does the same thing Hina does when you first meet them where he writes down the name like on his palm three times and it was just very adorable but the whole time this whole time I was just thinking to myself 
why hasn't Toko said anything? Like, why yeah. hasn't she told Kamaru that she knows Makoto? Why doesn't she tell Yuta that she knows Hina? Like, I that I could not wrap my head around. I was like, why isn't Toko saying anything? <laughs> yeah, I did think about that too. And I, I wonder if it's because she knows, like, this is kind of sad, but she knows, like, the state of, like, what is happening around them and, like, doesn't want to, like, get their hopes up when they might die maybe i i will also say like she throughout this entire chapter is very quiet at points like the amount of times where she has like a an ellipses like a dot 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 as her line is immense innumerable and so like i almost wondered if there was like like i don't know why she's keeping it i wonder if something has happened to makoto that we aren't aware of Mm. and so she doesn't want to bring up that she went to hope's peak because then she would be getting like receive questions and yeah it could also be that she assumes that if she tells kamaru that like makoto's in the future foundation and he's waiting for you right over there like that kamaru will go will want to leave and but togo still wants to look for Biakuya. so she's like withholding that information mm. so kamaru doesn't want to leave as as bad true like she wants to have a friend there to help yeah yeah true because unless toko is genocide jack she's pretty much helpless when facing the monokumas that's true right yeah oh also fun fact about the, this game which i think is really really cool is i didn't know this until i like i was i was watching like a fun facts video but there are three like levels to this game. There's like genocide mode, there's Kamaru mode and despair mode. And genocide mode makes it like, basically you can use genocide Jack whenever you want, which makes you invincible because you don't take damage. And they did that on purpose because a lot of the people who are going to be playing this game were used to the visual novel style and would want the story without the hard action scenes. And so that's why they created Genocide Jack as like a playable character so that like people who don't play action games could just get through it really easily and then get to the story parts of the game, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And so is is like Kamaru mode intermediate and then despair mode is, is like hardest. It's super hard, yeah. Yeah. I actually had a note about like the gameplay kind of mechanics and whatnot. And it's very interesting. Obviously, we've said that it's very different from our standard visual novel. And I think maybe it's, you know, they're trying to appeal to maybe a wider demographic of like the kind of games that people are into. But it was interesting that they still kind of we talked before about how they did they really didn't hold back with the violence, blah, blah, blah. But in a way, they kind of do because you're not shooting people ever in this game. This is no Call of Duty or something like that. Um, You know, you have this like electronic gun that's like breaking Monokuma robots, you know? Um, And and then even when you like jumping ahead a little bit, but even when you fight like Masaru at the end, you're not fighting him directly. You're never hurting or fighting a child. You're fighting the robot that he's piloting. And so um, I thought that was good like I thought that was a good way around like kind of making it like the shooter style game but not making it like overly violent and not doing something where you're like trying to fight children um (laughs) so I yeah I don't know I I thought that was kind of interesting um anything else about Yuta I don't have anything I mean he dies very sadly like this game is just so brutal because yeah, in the killing games, like people died from executions, but like this is, we automatically have a closer connection to Utah right off the bat because we know Asahina and we know like 
that they're they're close. And so now it's like you're viewing this person as Asahina's brother who she will never see again because he's dead. Yeah. Like that is really that is just really sad. Anyway. Um and I think Toko even might like I think she says something after that being like, "Oh no, now I'm going to have to break the news to Hina or something." Doesn't she say something like that? Yeah. And she goes, "Oh, I'm going to have to tell that idiot swimmer bimbo." Yeah. That- and that's a horrible position to be in. I mean, to be like delivering the news that that someone's loved one has died something tells me toko would not do a very good job of being a grief counselor about breaking the news (laughs) she'd be like she'd be like all right you big boobed idiot (laughs) like yeah we're there are we are we ready we can are we ready to move on to the literal gladiator fight in the (laughs) coliseum um which is maddie actually it's it's a coliseum (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and it's an interesting reference because in ancient greece or ancient rome or whatever they used to like throw prisoners of war into arenas and stuff like that and what with like lions and like watch them get mauled and that was like the fun like day on the town like that was the entertainment it's like messed up but it's like it's 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 like the, that's what these children are doing now there's like an audience and they're all like rah rah out in the the stadium they're like yeah let's watch the fight and i don't think that children are immune to that like the the attraction of that and like getting a kick out of things like that um and it, it, yeah that's yes marin i have a really good nursing point um off of that is <laughs> my only nursing point for the episode yeah um so we learn about milestones that children should hit as they grow up. So like, there's like, I'm going to make this up at two months, the child should be able to crawl or lift their head or something. Um, And it goes on and above and beyond, like they should be able to cut a circle in a piece of paper with scissors. They should be able to tie their shoes, stuff like that. And kids don't understand the concept of death being irreversible until around age 10 to 12. Like that is something that is not understood by children until that age, which makes this whole story and game so interesting. Toko says something when they're in the arena that's like, they just don't seem to get it or something. And they don't, like she is right, but, but, like they don't. And there is a part of their brain that is preventing them from understanding that, or maybe preventing isn't the right word, but there's a part of their brain that hasn't developed yet to help them to understand that what they're doing, they can't take back. There's no take backs in this game. And so I found that very interesting. I was like, I think it would lend to a discussion that we'll probably have at the end of this game about who is to blame for the things going on. Um, But yeah. Wow. That's so... That just puts, I think, an even... Like, it makes it even sadder. Like, the spin that that puts on, on the... Because I would say that the kids like Warriors of Hope are probably past that age. I think 13, 14. Like, I think they they understand. They're, they're 12. They're 12. So they're, and some of them are younger, I think. Okay. So they're like right on the cusp there. That it's like maybe some of them like get it, the severity of what they're doing, but maybe some of them don't. Yeah. And I think the kids who are running around in the helmets appear to be smaller in my eyes than the yeah, Warriors yeah. of Hope. And so I would imagine that they're not. And even if the ones we see are 10 to 12 or beyond, there are kids out there who are not adults who, yes. you know, so I, yeah, it's very interesting. The the helmeted kids running around for sure. For sure. Yeah. A lot of them are probably a lot younger. Wow. 
Because, I mean, it's just a game to them, literally. Like, some of them, it literally might just be a game to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, Masaru is, like, this. he's such a stereotypical, like, young boy. Like, boy. That sounds bad. Like, but no, no. Like, my brother, like, is, he was a, he was all, quote, like, my parents would use all boy when he was a kid. Like, he played sports. He was a little ultimate PE. Like, he <laughs> was into, like, cars and all the things that stereotypically boys are into. And I think it's very interesting because this is leading into a different point a little bit, but um, he's very sexist toward Toko and Kamaru. And I had this sort of theory. It's sort of implied that his father or someone in his life is very abusive and likely drank alcohol because he comments specifically on like alcohol in his like little speech before. And I was thinking that like, especially based on the part where he like, like, beats himself up for like feeling fear which is a part that I could not watch I was like I couldn't watch it it was so like hard to watch someone do that to themselves but um it made me wonder if his father was a like viewed masculinity in a toxic way where he would beat his son whenever he felt fear um and or if he showed any weakness or femininity at all which is why Masaru is like boy on steroids like of stereotypical traits of a boy I I totally think that that's that's true I have a great point off of that I completely agree okay so when you go to face Masaru with his final boss he introduces his robot as hero robot Mark Giver and I was like what does that sound like and it sounds like MacGyver yeah, yeah. Okay. So MacGyver is a movie. Um, it was remade like in I think the 2000s or something, but it is about a man who is like a hero. He solves complex problems with like very ordinary objects, like like very small, like what you'd find in your pocket. He's able to disarm a bomb with that, basically. But MacGyver is thought of as one of the first manly men who kind of goes against stereotypes of what makes men men. Um, Like he is a little bit more communicative and like he does like, I don't know, he's just, yeah, he, he handles things or tries to without violence. That's his main goal. And I think that that is such an interesting connection with Masaru because Masaru probably didn't fit his mother father whoever's image of what makes a man a man um similar to how MacGyver doesn't fit the stereotypical manly hero and yeah I just thought that was kind of a a cool connection and like I think that's what they were going for with that name maybe not but yeah yeah and like I to add on to that like it's so important for men to express fear and grief and sadness which MacGyver does like he he is like open about all of those things where it's like Masaru, you see him like suppressing that. Um. Yeah. And I agree with you, Caroline, the scene where Masaru starts to like beat his own arm hate it. Um, and like, I think break his own arm. I mean, we see it's very, very bruised. Um, but yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. I mean, like I would assume that um, he had an alcoholic parent, probably an alcoholic father who beat him. Um, and I think he ended his, he ends up turning it on himself because it gives him like some kind of control. And I think maybe that's why he was hurting himself. Um, Or he thinks that he can like 
like literally beat the weakness out of himself um because I think it's like his arm starts shaking because he's afraid and then he's like no like you're not like he starts beating like beating up his arm that was shaking because he doesn't want to be afraid and it's uh yeah I also was like really shook from when Master like opens the the doors to the literal pile oh my of God. dead bodies like I wow I mean it looked like like Pompeii like this pile of like bodies covered in like ash and dust it, it's just it was horrible I was like this is just oh my goodness so, um, well, first of all, I just want to say, um, I feel like Mar- Marin and Maddie would be disappointed if I didn't uh, make the connection that there's a character in Peter and the Snarketcher. His name <laughs> is Parentis, and he always wants to be the leader. And that was like who I was thinking about throughout this entire thing. And in like when we were in it in high school, the guy who played Prentice had red hair, so I couldn't help but be reminded. But yeah, th- so Masaru makes a couple of points about what heroism is to him, which I wholeheartedly disagree with all of his opinions about what a hero is, but he says, the best leader is the one who stands up, uh, not the one who cowers in the corner. I'm not one of those adults who call themselves leaders, but hides like a coward. And he goes to talk about how like a leader is the one, or like someone who's brave goes like on the front lines and like all the that stuff, which reminded me also of Hamilton because Hamilton wanted to be in, in the front line, but you yeah. know, he, he ended up doing more by not being there. But anyway, um, but this reminded me of the hero archetype and I'm really excited to explore each of the archetypes of the children because they all fit one of the 12 Jungian archetypes, which for those of you listening right now, I have a whole episode on our Patreon where I talk about archetypes and all of that jazz. So definitely subscribe to our Patreon if you want to check that out. But um, yeah, I wanted to delve a little into the hero archetype and just read like a little about it. So the core desire of the hero archetype is to prove one's worth through courageous acts, which is literally how he values his worth. He values it by like getting affirmations from the crowd, killing the pile of dead bodies and all that jazz. Um, and the the greatest fear is weakness, vulnerability, which is like, we literally see him go through that. And his another weakness is like arrogance, always needing to battle or to fight. Um, and then, ta- okay, also, I really loved this. The hero is also known as the warrior, the crusader, rescuer, superhero, the soldier, dragon slayer, and the winner and he he wants to be all of those things so i just thought it was neat um to explore that it's also interesting because earlier um nagisa says something different like a true leader should be calm and dignified which again on a separate note made me think nagisa mentally might be a little more mature than uh, the others when he said that i was like that 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 there's more going on there that i think we're going to learn about but yeah Those are my hero notes. I mean, I think a leader can really be anyone that people follow. But I think like a strong leader, definitely, you can't just be loud and expect to be um, respected. Yeah. 
So next, like after we beat him, he is pulled away like by all of the children around him into some unknown location. The execution music is playing. So the assumption there is that he dies, although Kamaru has now had execution music twice and is not dead. So who knows? But like, I think the assumption is that he, he dies and his punishment for losing against Kamaru is death, which is super extreme. And I think it kind of nods to the idea that there aren't any limitations within the children's game because they are willing to kill other children. You know, like the, it's not, it's not cut and dry. This is not Monokuma's rules that he sticks to and follows to a T there. There are no rules here. Um, yeah. True. I wanted to bring up too, how um, his execution mirrors Leon's, which I thought was really, really interesting. Like how at the beginning of Leon's execution, he's like being pulled down and there's that freeze frame of him before he gets pulled. And it was very similar with um, Masaru. So not only is the resemblance uh, physical, but it is also in their executions. True. Yeah. I also think it was interesting how um, when all the kids with helmets on are surrounding him in the stadium and they're all cheering and screaming while all of this is going on before the battle begins Masaru says something along the lines of he starts to say like oh do you hear them all cheering like they're they're yelling for me they're rooting for me they love me like that sort of thing but his voice like kind of breaks in that moment like he sounds really unsure when he says that he's like they they they, they, they like me they they're cheering for me like it, it sounds really much like he's trying to convince himself of that and so at the end we see this mob of children like drag him away and like the execution music's playing and we're like oh okay that happened so were the kids all really rooting for him after all I don't know Mm. it's it's hard to say it's like it very much Caroline it absolutely very much reminds me of Lord of the Flies where they just gang up on someone and they're just like all right it's it's punishment time (laughs) for you so So the last real plot point we see is that we see a white bear that is kind of watching the girls from afar. And I mean, my first thought was this is just a new type of bear to fight. We have like Bomber, Monokuma and like all the little cute little names. But like that was what I assumed. Junk Monokuma? Yeah. She? Um, please. Junk Monokuma. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. That was literally in my note. Like I wrote like, please? you Junk Monokuma, I hate you so much. Because <laughs> it's so scary. Please cut that entire thing. But we'll oh. bleep it. We'll bleep it. Just bleep it. <laughs> oh, also true. My favorite, my favorite is the Siren Monokuma because they dance. Mm. Yeah. Those are those are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> they're like a, they're having a little rave. The lights are flashing. And like, <laughs> That's so good. I love that. In this chapter, we see that the archetype or the person that is like executed is um, Masaru, obviously, who is the hero archetype. And similarly, I think that Tok more so Kamaru, but Kamaru develops skills to make a decision at the end. We see her make a choice, like that, which she has not done before, which shows. Like, despite her fear, she is showing leadership, which is something that Masaru didn't have. But that is her sort of coming of age development for this chapter, which I think is kind of cool um, that it kind of mirrored the, you know, the child who wasn't able to develop in that way. Um, Rip, but also like, yay, Kamaru, like (laughs) leadership skills, bro. So, yeah. All right, friends. So this season, instead of Bed Blood Be Head, we're going to be doing something a little different, a little more inclusive. Um, so we are going to be um, just kind of coming up with some random prompts. So every episode, there's going to just be three things and three characters. And we just have to choose like 
what thing we would want for each character. Um, that didn't make a lot of sense, but I will give this first round as our example. <laughs> um, so we are going to be going through the characters Yuta, Yuta Asahina, Masaru, and Kamaru. And we have to decide of those three characters, A, which one would we get stuck in an elevator with for 12 hours? B, which one would we want to take with us to Disney World? And C, which one would we want to have to tutor them in math every day for a week? I would not want to tutor Kamaru. Oh my God. <laughs> She'd give up in two seconds. <laughs> so for being caught in an elevator, I think that I would be caught with Yuta um, because he, you know, like he's sort of, he's a problem solver and he might like try to do a couple of things, but also I think it would be fun to get to know him a little more than we see in this game um, and like chat. And he seems very friendly and nice. So that would be really fun. Um, I would take um, Masaru to Disney World because that poor boy needs to go to Disney World. He needs the magic and the love. I was like, I'll take him with me, little buddy. You can come with me um, and we can go ride Space Mountain together. Uh, actually, no, I hate roller coasters in the dark. Um, <laughs> so we would actually go on It's a Small World together. Yeah. That's so cute. And, uh, and then I would tutor Kamaru even though I just literally said that I would hate to tutor her because she would give up so easily but I think that um that sort of environment is like very is lower stakes than being caught in an elevator with her because in an elevator she would just like die apparently she would just like, collapse and so like I would rather tutor her and then like be like okay like let's try the next practice problem and she's in an environment where she wants to learn more or like needs to learn more for school so she might be more willing and not give up as easily so um yeah that was that was my selection so my answer is a little different I would I would also um if I had to get stuck on an elevator for 12 hours with one of them I'd probably choose Utah um he does seem nice and okay here's here's my thing like I am horribly claustrophobic. So if I was stuck in an elevator, I'd be having a million panic attacks. And so that makes this question a little different for me. I don't think any of those three are ideal for being in that situation with, but I think I think that Yuta seems kind. He seems like he has a big heart. He seems like maybe he'd be the kind of like guy to be like, let's play chopsticks to like distract you from like being anxious or whatever and maybe just like I, I don't know yeah I, I agree with um Caroline that's like maybe we could get to know him a little better because we don't get to see that much of him and maybe just have like a conversation and I think that he would probably be best at like distracting me from the fact that I'm stuck in an elevator um I would I would probably take Kamaru to Disney World because um for the other two they might not be tall enough to ride some of the rides um and so I would probably take Kamaru with me so that I don't have to be like all right well I'm ditching you to go on a roller coaster because I want to ride the roller coaster too bad for you um <laughs> and I, I think I think Kamaru would be down to ride the roller coaster <laughs> Maddie that is like the only like only you would think of that I like to think wow. through everything and then okay and then here's my other big brain answer I would tutor Masaru in math because he is the youngest so he is in the lowest grade in school and that math is going to be easiest to tutor for so 
that is my answer. <laughs> that is very practical. Brain. Like, <laughs> like big brain energy. Okay. Um, I would take Masaru to Disney World. I agree that boy needs a break. We would live it up. We'd run around. It would be lit. Ultimate, two ultimate little PEs, right? Little ultimate PEs. That's the right order. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I would... Um, be in the elevator with Kamaru which would be horrible however it would be 12 hours and then it would be over um meanwhile I'm imagining the other two um you know tutoring is more than one day I couldn't stand that for more than one day and then Disney World we'd go for like a week could be fun so well, you really hate Kamaru don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no she's just oh uh, it'd be yeah so wait until wait until the end like the end is like well, yeah yeah we'll, we'll do a tier list for this maybe <laughs> maybe a, a patreon episode we'll see um yeah and then uh what's left yuda i would tutor because because yuda is a speedy boy, right? He's on cross-country. So I would apply those same tactics to his timetables. He would become the greatest mathematician in the world. He would get to go to Hope's Peak Academy with his beautiful sister, Hina, except that Hope's Peak is on the ground in rubble. But but ignore that. In a different world, they would just dominate the world as ultimate mathematician, ultimate swimmer girl. Yep. <laughs> beautiful oh wow i enjoy these like these yeah they're fun i'll try to think of more there's like more reasoning than just i think this character's hot (laughs) (laughs) that's true all right everybody that is it for today we are so excited to be sharing our first episode of season three of our podcast with you guys we cannot believe how far we've come um but it's really all because of the support from you all we really cannot thank you all enough for listening to our podcast Uh, a way to support us even further is by subscribing to our patreon we do release bonus episodes on there um, and depending on what tier of patreon you subscribe to you can also join a discord server with all of us and our patrons it is a really fun time so check that out Um, be sure to check us out at our website ultrahopegirls.com and follow us on all forms of social media we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all that good stuff. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer on our podcast, um, be sure to leave us a voicemail on anchor.fm and then you'll have a chance to have your voice be featured on our podcast. So that's all for today. We hope you all enjoyed and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.